You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hello and welcome to Red Centre number 59. I'm Mike Seymour, joined by Jason Wingrove. How are you, sir? I'm extremely well. How are you, mate? Good, good. So, uh, an interesting uh, kind of non, non-red non news week. Extremely non-red. Not going to change the name just yet, but geez, yeah. Quiet red week. Don't anticipate that next week. Nah, no. Or next time no, we're, we're going <laughs> We're definitely going to make up for it next week when we'll be at NAB. And I'm as giddy as a schoolgirl. <laughs> <laughs> so, later in the... Uh, yeah, okay. You you and a schoolgirl dress something I didn't need as a mental picture. Um, so we're going to be talking uh, in the Red Room later to uh, Noah Kadner, who is the author of the uh, Red, the Ultimate Guide to Red book. And uh, we have a chat to him, not only about the book, actually, but also about his views on Red and uh, how it's perceived in the marketplace and, you know, generally what's happening with uh, the industry at large. Excellent. That's coming up later in the show. Um, we're also going to do first of our tech uh, discussions about workflow to do with the Phantom, picking up on last week's um, sort of casual thing. We decided we'd make that a bit more formal. We put mm. out the word on the Twitter whether you guys would like to do that. And uh, the, the response, well, I think, Jace, was universally yes. Yeah, absolutely. People are always keen to... Here you geek out, my friend. <laughs> and then uh, we'll be doing a whole bunch of cameras over the coming weeks, um, and including some of the new cameras. Uh, in And I throw into that optimistically, I hope, uh, things like the uh, Ari Alexa as well as um, Definitely. new uh, Reds and all sorts of things. Okay, so let's start, as we always do, uh, with a quick summary of the news. Jace, what's been happening? Yeah, well, the first thing is uh, that the uh, hot on the heels of the... Uh, Canon 5D firmware was the uh, EOS, the E1 uh, plug-in for Final Cut Pro. Have you had a play with this, Mike? Uh, no, I have not. Okay. Well, but I just... I will be looking at it. A little bit of a play. I had a little bit of a play. But uh, obviously, once you've had a play, then it all makes sort of a bit more sense to me. But uh, <laughs> no, look, it was, it, was, it was very clean, very simple, very easy. Obviously, I I'm, wasn't doing a approach. I was just cutting some personal footage just for a look and a bit of a test. So I didn't quite, quite need all of the sort of um, time code uh, uses of it. But it was really nice and clean. As soon as I put the memory card in the card reader, read the files brilliantly. A lot of people had sort of problems plugging their cameras in directly, plugging their cameras in via USB. Can't do it. You have to put it in a card reader. It's a bit picky about where it looks for its files. So it's really looking for uh, the CF card in a card reader. And then it sees the files, beautifully brings them all up in the window in, um, in uh, Log and Capture. So, so what this is doing is getting me from H.264 out of the camera to something like a ProRes, right? Exactly, into ProRes. Uh, the trick that I had is that uh, for I'm still on Final Cut Pro 6, so I was limited to uh, ProRes 422 HQ, which is obviously way in excess of the uh, uh, data rate of the original files. So obviously if you're on Final Cut Pro 7, you can then go to uh, 422 LT. Yeah, that, that ProRes uh, 422 LT is a really good format for this kind of stuff. Okay, because, so I mean, I believe people have... N- I don't know if you really tested the difference, but a lot of people have, particularly when you're using this footage, you're using a footage that's lower quality than the actual codec itself. There's really no. Oh no! Look, I think it's brilliant. No I, I think um, that that alone is a good reason to upgrade and uh, to do stuff. I think working with uh, the ProRes LT is exactly what we do um, here when we shoot stuff on the right. Okay. Seven D. Because you're dealing with like 750 megabytes for a minute versus like 1.6 gig for a minute of HQ. So it can yeah. really start to... And it makes a yeah, huge difference to performance and stuff. And rendering. And if we're going to mm-hmm. go great, if you're going to start playing with Magic Bullet or whatever after that. 
so um yeah so that's out obviously that's that's really great and that's um along with the audio it's really sort of starting to you know if we can start sorting out some of the kludgy stuff with the cameras we'll get there but uh at the moment that is uh, a really great really great step and making things a lot easier for in the editing process for sure and it's theoretically it's meant to transcode the stuff bring it in quite quick three times faster than what previously been possible i guess through compressor again i haven't really tested that but um if anyone knows has done a bit of a hard and fast comparison between the two let us know and, and i think the thing is this is from canon right yeah so this exactly. is not like uh this is a hack this is you know canon getting in there and uh and which you know would explain the speed improvements because they can actually get in and understand what they're doing now they've worked sides. with somebody else to do this plug-in i bet you they did yeah. Who? Cineform, maybe? I Could be. Remember. Could be. Somebody, somebody else is involved, not just uh, Canon, of course. To uh, Because somebody had this plug-in coming on their website for like six months. Okay. And then it never came. And then this did. So there I you think go. I could be wrong. Okay. But anyway, that's terrific. It works really well. It just like pointed at the files, set and forget. It just processes yeah, them so in many, the background. There are so many things like this coming uh, around NAB time. Yeah. You, I can talk about this because they've published it. Have you seen the uh, Premiere tech demo at the Adobe site for um, their Mercury engine? I've sort of seen it, yes. That was a few weeks ago. Yeah. It's actually kind of interesting because, uh, and we'll come on to it when we're doing RED workflow, but um, they show RED clips and it's, it's actually, for somebody that doesn't know what they're looking at, it reads remarkably like the system is processing two R3D clips at 4k in real time doing keying and playing back at 4k yes it did look a little bit looks a bit like that yes which was actually mathematically impossible if you think about the rate that the disc can write um maybe 60 uh megabytes a second to the to a hard drive you'd need to be up at like you know 1.2 gigabytes a second terabytes a second so yeah you're not gonna it's just uh there's uh, sorry, gigabytes a second, not terabytes. Um, so, yeah, so it's just not going to be um, uh, viable to do that because basically that would mean that you had in software something that was running twice as fast as a uh, Red Rocket card yeah. and going to drives that could take down that kind of uh, data stuff. Now, what they are doing is very useful and very good. I just think the trouble is, as is the case with Red and some of this stuff with uh, the SLRs as well, the PR pitch stuff, looks so effortless and so seamless that you're kind of not exactly sure what you're looking at. Mm. Um, and in the case of that Mercury stuff, I, I think that's part of it. But we'll cover that Premiere workflow because it is good. It's just not it's not, it's not breaking the laws of physics. Like a few print, people were like, hey, have you seen this? This new Adobe CS5 can... Pr-. I'm like, no, 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 no. We'll back up. Yeah, well, that'd be interesting. I guess there'll be a Premiere in, in bundled in with CS5 usually, isn't there? Well, with I can't CS4 discuss CS5 no, okay. All right, other than on. to say anything that Adobe said I can repeat, and they've okay. they've indicated Premiere CS5 stuff. Well, I'm keen to Adobe play with Labs. it. Are you listening, Adobe? I'm keen to, have, keen to play. I Last time I had a tinker with Premiere, I didn't come off feeling too comfortable with it, and that's just me. I know that's going to start a whole... Well, the other thing that is in Premiere that is again published that we can no wait no we're not that's no, not published actually there's a okay there's something else that's coming that they've published a research paper um, but I can't put those two together there's other stuff that's coming obviously good uh, anyway I need to watch my, my mouth carefully right hey now. um uh, changing gears completely really quickly <laughs> just see the cool um, Sakudo shootout. 
Yeah, now this looks really. This was really interesting. I must admit, I've sort of watched it over and over and over. It's quite, quite interesting, quite impressive. So Philip Bloom, Bob Primes, Steve Weiss, Gary Adcock, Jens Bohagen, and the colorist uh, Ryan Emerson did this uh, really in-depth uh, comparison with with uh, a couple of thirty-five mil stocks, Kodak and Fuji stocks, and the one D Mark IV, five D Mark II, seven D, the Nikon D3S. Panasonic GH1, and I think just in the tail end of the, I think it just got released at the tail end of the tests, the uh, D550. Thanks guys for doing this. It was a really great test. As obviously, as we know, Mike, there's going to be a lot of work involved in doing this and getting the results out. And there's really only just the first part of these uh, three-part tests rolling out now. But I mean, you've you've seen the test, Mike? I'm Absolutely. Really I think impressed. one of the yeah, the thing about the, the doing a test like this, which is really difficult, is um, Ordinarily, you need to sit in a cinema to have any appreciation of what's being seen. And what I liked mm. about this test is that they got some really good people to watch the footage and then you got to hear their comments on watching the footage. Because obviously, you know, quite frankly, uh, and I think somebody even said this in the video, anything looks good on the web, right? Because you shrink something down small enough. Yeah. And, and also then you've got encoding artifacts and is that the H.264 of what you're watching or was that yeah. in the footage? And it's really hard to tell. So even in this footage on, on, on their site, it's still a little bit hard to tell about the artifacts. Mm. But you get a fantastic idea of, you know, the dynamic range and how these things are handling highlights and the shadows. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the thing that I find both surprising and odd is that, and I see I come from a commercials background, I didn't, I didn't start in features. And in commercials, we used to have really good looking images 8-bit all the time. So, so in, part of me is torn because part of me wants to say, well, yeah, the trouble with um, what you're doing with that test is that what we've seen so far, they haven't been pushing the grades. They've been grading them to make them look the same. But yeah. if you shoot it and it looks good, then it looks good. And I think that's completely valid. Mm. Um, in my experience, there's a lot of pushing around that happens, and it's when pushing around happens that you get into trouble. So whether that'll come in later tests, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but having, as I said, like honestly, we used to get Telecine film transferred eight bit to a digi beta. It was eight bit four two two. That's it. And we used to happily regrade it in Flame and key it and composite and do stuff with it, and make really good commercials, and it looked mm, good. Yeah. Um, so, in one sense, I'm not surprised that 8-bit footage can look good when you um, output it, especially if it's 1920x1080, because, again, the 1920x1080 is so close to 2K in comparison to, say, mm. PAL or NTSC, which was like a quarter of the size mm. and thus really softened when it blew up. So that doesn't surprise me. But even by the same token, I don't think that just because you shoot some really well-shot footage really well-lit and it looks good is reason to say that you're killing film. I think that there's a... There's a you know a majority of workflows that takes in X and condenses it and converts it and bends it and expands it mm. to Y, and that stuff needs all the latitude it can get. And then there's other stuff where you know if it looks good, uh, you're done the job. And I, I remember a colorist in London who told me that he'd won the best colorist of the year at one of the London awards for some underwater footage of babies. And he said, you know what? It was just so well lit. I hardly did anything to it. It was natural lighting. It was gorgeous reef colors. They were, you know, really rich. And of course, then there's other days where, you know what it's like, you've, you've got shot, stuff shot of a car or something, and it's really hard to make that stuff look yeah, good. And the yeah. colorist works really hard to get it somewhere. And one colorist can make it look great and the other person's going to just struggle and struggle no matter what your input is so i just think that uh i think it's an absolutely brilliant shootout i'm still not in a position where i think 
um, I would want to do myself. Um, you, you pull me up on this one, but if you said to me, I've got a chance to direct this serious TVC short film or whatever, I don't want to shoot the whole thing on the 7D. I just don't want to do it. I don't want to commit to that. And quite frankly, on your film, uh, Moving Day, you know, we had shot stuff on the 7D and we shot stuff on the red. And in the flame, when I'm working with it, you know, the red stuff looks better. Sure. It does. Yeah, and I can do more with it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Useless, you can do but... more with it. I mean, obviously, as you say, they're all grading all the stuff to match, to, to look alike. But what, what we're not seeing, I guess, is how far did they have to pull individual files to make get them that way and how much more was left at the end? Did they have much more to go or is every single one of those files, are they dragging the crap out of it to try and get it to match uh, 35, you know, I mean, in the shadows? Th- they are doing green screen tests coming up, so that'll oh, be yeah, really look, interesting. Oh, yeah, there's much more to come. And but I don't think really anyone's really saying, you know, we're trying to kill film or this no, is No, but I've seen some film. comments in the forum, not by the guys that did the test. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, well, you know, shoot me a car driving along a road where it's pretty overcast and you want to put a grad in the sky and loom a key at in and do stuff with it that was never meant to be. Mm. And then you're going to want as much latitude as you can possibly get. So I think it's terrific that they've done the test. I think the results are really interesting. To a certain extent, as I say, half of me is not surprised at all that it looks good because why wouldn't I, you know, good eight bits is a good eight bits, right? Yeah. But by the same token, you know, no one in their right mind would make a feature film these days and do an eight-bit pipeline. In fact, they're going the other way. They're talking about, you know, doing open EXR pipelines and just like much, much greater bit depth than uh, you could possibly do, which begs the question, well, I think, not so much whether or not these cameras are appropriate, but how cool will these cameras be when, as rumoured at around NAB time, they take the sensors out of these and stick them in a video body and record RAW, yeah. which is, of course, the red model. Mm. Um, because if you can get this out of an 8-bit uh, line-dropped image, yeah. what are you going to get? Because uh, the sensors are great. The lenses are great. There's no reason why they shouldn't be great. I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody who was in, in attendance was pretty impressed. I myself was surprised at how close it got, particularly in some of the low lights and shadows and, you know, just like single flame lighting things and that it, what, none of this stuff was really getting very noisy. Uh, really quite impressed that you know how, how how close they could get it at least, and what was it was quite interesting comparison between the different cameras, and to see how much uh, detail film held in like bare light bulbs, you know, at yeah, that you was know four or five stops over, and that was really the you know, just it was the last little part of the hot exposure, like really blowing out glass bricks in the background or hot bare bulb where you could really sort of start to see the difference. It was in that really hot stuff. And it wasn't so much necessarily that the, the, the DSLRs didn't hold up. It was just they rolled off those highlights differently. And it just they, none of them really didn't look like too much like film. They just all had a different look. So what was interesting was that uh, I guess that the, the video stuff didn't look all that bad, really. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, it isn't video video. It's um, yeah. It's nice stuff with nice lenses. You know, I mean... I can remember when 16 mil. I think what would have been really interesting is to stick some 16 mil in there, and everyone I think would have been shocked at oh, how yeah. bad the 16 how looked. shitty 16 is. Yeah. Um, because I think we remember 16 as being better than it is. Yeah, well, a few uh, a few episodes back when I interviewed uh, the BSC about their film comparison test, one of the main things that stuck out uh, in their mind was how terrible 16 is, and how, that was the big one of the biggest shocks. Uh, you know, I mean, I've never been a fan of the stuff, but, uh, you know, it was almost like if you couldn't shoot 35, you shot 16. Now I wouldn't even, I couldn't even, 
wouldn't even consider it. Not unless you're doing something really, really... Yeah, um, unless you're doing like Hurt yeah. Locker where you're in the desert and you've mm. got to shoot a lot and you want that doco, you want that sort of two-thirds depth feel, you know, that more sort of filmish version of, of um, news footage. Um, yeah, then you'd go for it. But other than that, I just... oh. Anyway. Now, I want to pick up on something, uh, changing the subject, that you tweeted during the week, and I think it's a really valid point. You, I think, tweeted during the week something along the lines of, what the hell is the native ISO <laughs> of my camera? Yeah. And I laughed. Well, not Did laughed you? at you. I laughed with you. I, I was yeah. like, very sympathetic. Well, a, I, I started to think, well, hang on, because obviously we had that conversation last episode uh, where we talked about, you know, the native ISO of red and that really being what you do. You know, mm-hmm. why, why change the ISO to 3200 or 2000, you know, or to 50? Oh, well, let's, I, won't, I won't push the sensor. Let's change the ISO of the, of the red to, uh, you know, I'll expose at 100 ISO. That way I won't be pushing things too much. But the more you go away from the native you know sensitivity of the chip then obviously the more you're sort of starting to head away from your um you know you're heading outside that dynamic range i guess am i talking shit does that sound right no i mean look i think this is something that we should clear up because i think a lot of people had a similar kind of um you know moments of huh yeah i I got plenty of different results results, different answers and and i think a lot of time i think a lot of the time there are things like this that are out there that no one's actually stopped to kind of answer definitively yeah and, and also because we're red center we're going to geek out on it because we like geeking out on it but i'd um, like to i want yeah we're going to work out we're not just going to waffle around it eventually eventually not necessarily this episode or next episode, we'll get to the bottom of this sort of stuff and what you know the uh, the iso question is still something you know if I'm, I'm talking obviously with red and with dps and proper situation not just me shooting a kid's birthday party on a 5d and wondering what iso i should set it at set it at i actually want to get to the bottom of this you know, sure. Okay. Well, the, let's let's set up the let's set up the framework then, right? Okay. Okay. So you want to rate a camera, any camera, and we're going to use a digital camera because it's red center. Um, okay. So you're going to rate a camera. So that I think there are a few things, and jump in, Joseph, if you think I'm wrong. But but as I said, I how I personally rate a camera. When somebody asks me that, is what I want to know is how many stops above and below a correct exposure can I get so that I can grade it back. This is not the latitude of the camera. This is not the number of. Um, this is not the dynamic range of the camera, though it's obviously completely related to the dynamic range of the camera, but it isn't the dynamic range. So, for example, if I shot a scene and I'm two stops over, if in a proper grading environment I can grade that back to look like normal and it's usable, well, then I know that's the, the range that I've got. Now, if I rate that camera at 800, that means I'm in the midpoint of that range of you know, where I can go. So if obviously I rated it differently, then I'd have more latitude either above or below that point. And I think this is a point I made yep. last week. I, I just stopped there last week and didn't keep going. So let's just finish that out to sort of give it its completeness. Okay, so the thing that you want to know about a camera is you want to know its ISO and you want to know its dynamic range. The dynamic range of a camera is measured in stops normally, um, but you could just as equally be me- measuring it in terms of contrast ratio. And most of us these days are used to contrast ratios from when we go to buy a TV and they'll have like a sticker on the corner. Okay, so debunking a couple of myths. So the first thing is the contrast ratio is obviously the difference between the brightest white and the blackest black. Um, Projected in a cinema, you're going to get about 500 to 1 as a contrast ratio. Don't panic because you'd only get actually less than or around 1K resolution at a projected cinema in the as well in fact the projected experience in the cinema just isn't that great we just Mm. are used to it being 
great. But actually, if you tried posting res charts up, it's the, not the op- optimum place to be doing anything because you've had Interpose, Interneg, yeah. Weave and Float, all these things. That's okay, on my desk, I've got an Apple display. Apple would rate that as a 1,000 to 1 in perfect conditions uh, range. So that's the dynamic range, but we don't normally talk about the dynamic range of the monitor. You just talk about the contrast ratio. So how does contrast ratio of 1,000 to 1 in perfect conditions Oh, and by the way, when you're looking at monitors, <laughs> there's a dynamic contrast range and there's a static uh, contrast ratio. So whether you're looking at dynamic contrast ratio or static are uh, com- two completely different numbers, but I'm, I'm slightly diverging. Okay, so now I've got, I've got this, this range on the monitor, yeah? How does it relate to f-stops? It's pretty easy. If I had about 1,000 um, to 1 contrast, that's about 10 stops, just a kind of a rule of thumb, yeah? Right. So so that's good. You say, okay, well, that's good. That's about 10 stops. I can cope with that. Um, so an LED, LCD screen, Apple claims is 1,001. I would say most LCDs are about 700 to 1, which is about 9.5 stops. Now, the thing is, contrast ratio and stops, well, you know that stops, every time you go up a stop, you double in light. So if I went up from 1,000 to 1 to 2,000 to 1, I go from 10 stops to 11 stops because obviously a stop, you yeah, know that very well. Yeah. Okay, so... Actually, most SLR, digital SLRs, are about 11 stops latitude, which is 20,000 to 1 contrast ratio. And so that literally means that if you put up a set of um, black to grey to white little lines up on a thing, you can tell them apart and you can go with them. Which begs the question, what's my eye? You know, what contrast ratio does my eye have? Because we're looking at these monitors. Mm. And this is where it really freaks most people out. So I'm going to answer it properly. A million to one. (laughs) But, but the reason why it's a million sure. to one, okay, so firstly, let's not get too excited because it is a sort of an exponential, you know, every time it goes up a, a stop, it doubles. But the thing about it is the way your eye does it is not just the iris. It's actually a chemical process that also happens. It's incredibly cool, the human eye. I mean, just downright, you know, proof of God, clever. And so there's an adaption thing that happens with your eye. So that's why when you go into a dark area, you can actually see in the darks and you go outside it takes a while for your eye to adjust that isn't just your iris opening and closing which can actually happen pretty bloody quickly it's the chemical changes in your eye so if you didn't leave the room and you just sat here looking at the monitor you've actually got about 10,000 to 1 static range so you'll see a million to 1 but that's well yes if you allow for the fact that your eye is doing the chemical thing and being super clever but just sitting in the room looking at your monitor you have 10,000 to 1, your monitor has about 1,000 to 1. Well, you can see why people are interested in HDRs right out of the gate because mm. you want to have more dynamic range. Okay, so that's got us our, our, our black to white. So where is the ISO on that? Well, we all know the ISO started as a rating on the sensitivity of film. So what they'd literally get is a centometer, sensitometer and measure how responsive the film was. And depending on what amount of exposure you had to have to produce the same density image would rate how sensitive the film is, right? If you need, you know, like less exposure to get the same density, then it would change the sensitivity of the film. So you can't do that with a piece of film in a digital camera, but you can, in fact, there are actually five ways that you can, I think it's five, maybe six, official ways that you can rate um, a camera and here you use a, what's called an EI rating or an exposure index rating. Exposure index ratings are you know, incredibly much like a um, a U-Butte uh, ISO yeah. or um, thing, but 
equivalent, IS, <laughs> yeah. ASA yeah. equivalent. But it's not exactly the same, but let's call no, it the same. To match. Yeah. And so we know um, also, so that's EI. We also know about EV, which is doubling amount of light. So human perception, our eyes, very close to logarithmic. It isn't exactly the same. It's actually Stephen's power law, but for, you know, excuse my French, fuck that. Just let's call it logarithmic and be done with it. So it's sort of pretty much the same that it goes up and about the same levels. Okay, so now I need to rate the darn sensor. And so you go, okay, well, let's get a red sensor and rate it. And we do that. We end up with 800 in my case. And we rate it based on the sensitivity and where it sits in the spectrum. And so then you go, well, that's so simple that you've just said it's 800. It's so simple that you've got this number and it sits in the middle of this contrast ratio. All great. Just tell me what it is for the for the Canon and I'll shut up. And then you go, ah, well, now, what red does that's different to Canon is it applies nothing at the sensor. Yeah. And this is where it becomes super funky and why you couldn't get a simple answer when you asked around on the net. Because, Jace, it isn't as simple as there is one ISO. There is a series of settings in terms of gain and electronic noise reduction and stuff that's happening at the sensor on a stills camera, and hence um, you know, like a 5D in video mode. And so what you'll find if you look at any of these things that there's sort of like step increments that isn't like a straight line. If you're graphing them, like the noise would drop almost every time you went up a full stop, but halfway stops where it's kind of having to increase the gain electronically and muck around with it, it, it jumps a bit. And so what happens is you could nominally say 120 uh, is a good number to work in your head, but you might actually get a lower noise on an individual sensor at either 100 or at 50. But there's some number around 100, yeah. 125, 150, whatever the particular model of camera is. And there's going to be a sweet spot for that sensor. So the, the red sweet spot, um, sorry, the red, the 5D sweet spot might be 160. And the reason I say that's a sweet spot is that that's the point at which the electronics is kind of tuned. And then the next step might be 320 or 640. And so it's not going to be a simple um, uh, deal. But on a stills camera like the 5D, you're going to find actually because of the electronics that are going on, you could easily rate the camera anywhere between 100 and say 1000 or, or 1250 with, with these only when you start going to the mega high ISOs do you start really seriously getting noise that doesn't drop on a per stock increment. Increment. That being said, I don't have the lowdown on the exact uh, formulation of the Canon EOS 5D chip and its noise levels. However, however, we are going to be sitting down with Canon at NAB and to one of the product technical guys, and this is exactly the sort of discussion we're going to get into to try and work out uh, under the hood what's happening with the chip, but. For those of you that are trying to rate your cameras, um, it is a good rule of thumb to just stay with a low ISO because that's going to be low noise. But you may not necessarily see, as you would with a red camera, uh, sort of a progressively sort of sensible increasing of noise as you move up the ISOs. Yeah. Because of the first few stops down at the low end of the 100 to 400 to 800, they're all going to be pretty much the same in terms of, um, of noise or similar because of the circuitry and the fact that unlike the red, the Canon isn't outputting a raw file and nor does it have any reason to want to. It just wants to output the best still picture possible. Yeah. There's still even in raw there's still processing going on on the five D. So it, because it isn't actually raw. This is the thing. Like yeah. the file that comes out of your Canon camera or out of your red for that matter isn't actually raw, raw, raw. naked raw. Mm. It's raw processed raw. Because I came across uh, a thread in on Cinema Five D 
just some simple ISO noise tests for the 5D. And it, that, that's where it just sort of totally threw me. I had no idea. There was like at ISO 100, a bit of noise. ISO 125, lots of noise. ISO uh, 160. When you say lots of noise, you mean relatively noise. speaking more noise, but still not much noise. Well, obviously, this is just, you know, literally put lens cap on and then uh, blow up the image and, you know, basically just this screen, this is screen grabs but, of... But wouldn't uh, you agree that, like, just forget what you found on the net, like, just down at the low ISOs, you just don't tend to get a lot of noise in the pictures? Yeah, sometimes, though, even if I, I you know, if you start to push those blacks in, uh, you know, in, in a grade... There's uh, there's uh, that uh, that weird sort of shower curtain red dots that you can see in the blacks quite quite quickly even whether you even if you're not actually underexposing, there is a little bit of sort of inherent background noise there in the 5D that I've found reasonably easy to to you know if you go looking for it it's there quite easily. Okay. Well, anyway, but what was interesting was that as you're saying the noise is coming and going in steps like 160 is reasonably clean. Um, but then uh, 200 is uh, sorry, two, 100 and 200 is 160 and 200 is quite quite clean. But then 250 is uh, is at least in this test dramatically noisier. And then 320 it jumps back down to clean again. So yeah, in those multiples of stops, it's doing processing and not processing. So there's clearly something going on. Obviously, with these clips are movie clips, so there's a lot more processing going on there than it's doing for raw. But uh, nonetheless, it just made it all the more confusing to try and work out what the actual native native. I know, regardless of the fact that there's processing, there's still the chip itself has to have a native photon to output sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah, but but that is coloured by the fact that there is processing at the chip level, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. it whether there is or there isn't, if you yeah, can't, you can't get bypass it, it, so yeah. So it's there, so yeah, therefore absolutely. it is. I mean my point is, as I say, I'm not a Canon expert, but we are sitting down with an absolute Canon expert at NAB, um, in a one on one session and so we'll address these. And by the way, if you have other issues, other technical issues you'd like us to try and uh look at uh, please email us because uh, we've been setting this up actually for several months, I think. Mm. Uh, it's been a while and um, we really want to be able to have a, a hardcore technical session and, uh, and answer and address some of these questions. So, so maybe- anecdotally, 160 <laughs> ISO. Anecdot- I just want an answer. <laughs> Anecdotally, yes. I, though I would have no problem if someone said I leave my camera on 100 or 125. Yeah. Me personally, I'd have no problem. Yeah. Uh, but it will vary literally between models. So if we're talking about your camera, you're talking about the 5D Mark II. Mm. That won't be necessarily the same. But it's not. I still claim it's not going to be dramatically different between 100 and 160. Yeah. No. There's. I've got a graph here in the show notes, uh, courtesy of uh, Adam J Photography, and he did some, a little bit of testing just on the 5D with noise levels, and he actually kind of graphed it out. And you can see, you can see those jumps up and down, 160 to two, you know, to, to 320 to 100, and you can see those little ups and downs. But it's dramatically nothing compared to the noise you're getting at, you know, 2,500 up, up that end of town. It stays really, very quite clean, quite clean, quite noise floor until like 1250, and then it starts to jump up. So, you know, that's why really we don't see all this stuff on the boards or anecdotally people saying, stay away from 800, don't go below 800, because you can still get there, you can still do that. Obviously, you're starting to head away from, you know, the natural latitude of the, of, of the camera, but... Um, Whereas a red literally has no gain, no processing yeah. upstream 
of the sensor. So you want to get the sweet spot on the sensor because you can get in under any other processing. Yeah, and you really can treat that ISO 800 as being that's the role of film that's being mm-hmm. loaded in the camera. Yeah, just start like, going left uh, exactly. up or down from that, and you're starting to you know go outside. I don't know the that one's spot. actually right or wrong. I think that if Canon can produce good results working the way they do, good on them. Sure. Um, yeah. Look, people will find a way, work but, around it. But I definitely think that uh, I'm going to look forward to uh, our chat in uh, Vegas. Mm. Hey, um, so uh, should we go to our interview, or do you have yeah. more news? No, no. I've just got a bit of gear on the other side. A bit of gear on the other side? A bit of gear. (laughs) (laughs) Five pages of bloody gear. No. Yeah, let's go to your interview. So um, Noah Kadner is actually a writer. He's um, he's actually uh, written for American Cinematographer. He, about a while ago, I guess a year and a half ago, pitched a book idea to write about Red, as you'll hear. And um, and look, I'll I'll be honest, Jace, in the uh, interview, as you'll hear me say, I was pessimistic that this book would be something i'd want and we bought it we didn't we don't go for uh you know freebie copies so i happily bought it off amazon and i was pleasantly surprised Noah, thanks for joining us hey mike how are you good so i really was uh impressed when i got your book i must i must confess now uh that when i got this book i didn't know you and I bought it just uh, off Amazon, and I was I was slightly skeptical that I was actually going to like it. Um, I think that's probably more my arrogance than your uh, lack of uh, effective marketing. Um, but nevertheless, I uh, now say this because I apologise unreservedly because I was very impressed when I got your book. It's uh, no, both extremely complete and has a really good range of um, I don't know they call them profiles, but just sort of comments, observations, uh, input from a really sort of a who's who of the red community. How long did it take you to write it? Um, I think it was it was just under a year from when I first sort of pitched the idea to the publisher to when it actually came out in print. Maybe six months of really solid work, and you know, I mean, these things take a lot longer than you expect. But uh, but I thought it was it was it was worth the time. It's nice to have a book when you're all done. So tell me, how did uh, how did it go in terms of getting people to contribute to the book? Because as I say, you really did have a, a stellar cast of contributors. Well, you know, it's funny. Some people there, there, and there are some people here that I wanted that I couldn't get, like some really big name directors who are who are big red uh, users. But the the folks who did were really cool, and I mean, I, I found them through all kinds of ways. I would, if I, if for example, some of the bigger DPs, I would kind of track them down through Facebook and sort of send them a blind message. Or if I happen to have, I also write for American Cinematographer magazine, so some of these people. I had I had previously worked with or had you know worked with somebody they worked with and you know it just took a lot of time and and doing but um, the when, once they found out what it was about a lot of people were were really excited to talk to talk about it and and even some people were upset that they didn't get interviewed so it's it's a real <laughs> wide gamut of people that I couldn't I couldn't beg to get into the book others who were thrilled to be in there and finally others who were upset that I didn't include them so you never know so I guess the big uh, question with a book is whether you can write a book that remains relevant for long enough because red is a moving target and yet the book does seem to have uh, be very broad but also have enough detail in there that I, I didn't feel like you were skimming over stuff for the purposes of uh, maintaining a, a book life a book shelf life yeah you know it's funny that was really the big that was the publisher's sort of big uh, question mark from the beginning was this is such an evolving and new workflow uh, you know a brand new camera from a brand new company and 
every week there's some new aspect of the workflow that either gets developed or discovered or whatever. How you know, print, printing a book is is a year of your time, and it's a, and it's even lead to print is you know months months away. So how how do you make it relevant? And I mean, we just kind of one thing we got really lucky on was that at the time the book was printed, a lot of these workflows had finally been firming up. You know, um, the workflow in Final Cut Pro had sort of been a moving target for a long time, and we were even being given advanced copies of Final Cut Pro by Apple, but basically we couldn't put anything about that into a book for print until it was released to the public. So part of it was kind of timing. We got really lucky. If the book had come out six months earlier, it would have had older information about uh, Apple as well as Premiere and even Avid were all kind of synchronized for once, which I imagine... And that's that's like a that's a that's a that's that's a that's a planetary alignment right there. So we got lucky. <laughs> so it is interesting that you're writing a a book about a camera, and yet, of course, one of the big sections or a large percentage of the book is devoted to workflow. Um, I guess uh, from a somebody that writes for American cinematographer and is very familiar with the industry, did it sort of surprise you how much time you had to spend on workflow versus, for example, on lenses or something that would you would more associate with a camera? Well, it, that struck me as the part. I mean, you know, I've always been active in online communities like Tupop, Creative Cow, Red User, DVX User, places like that, uh, DV Info. You know, places that are all, where people are always discussing workflow, and <clears throat> it struck me as this this camera, for whatever reason, has just been the most confounding to people. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with it being a brand new company and a camera that doesn't work like any other camera. I mean. If you're used to working, say, with Sony DV cameras or Sony HDVs or XD cams, you kind of start to see a certain famili- f- familiarity along the line. You know, same thing with, like, if you're working with Panasonic P2 cameras, you can almost pick up any one of those cameras, and if you're familiar with one, you kind of know where things are going to be located, whereas this camera, everything is completely written from scratch, not only on the, on the operation of the gear itself, but then how to handle it in post, and, you know, also you're dealing with... Uh, an image size that most people most people are right now are just coming to coming to grips with with high definition and then all of a sudden we're saying hey here's a 4k frame you know deal with that yeah what i like is that as i say you've got these things on like archiving your media but you've also got interviews or i think you call them first person's point of views from people like greg williams simon duggan you know really good dops really good people um from around the industry so so you're balancing out um you know that that workflow stuff with the point of view of the people using the camera and taking it through. But I tell you, what was the hardest part of that workflow for you? Just what was the? Was there any part of it that you yourself found like hard to get your head around, or was it all you think pretty much settled by the time you you uh, finished writing? Well, you know, um, I, for me, the, the the stuff that I was less familiar with. I mean, I had been I had been using the camera myself, hands on, um, pretty much almost from we 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 got really lucky and. Uh, my wife owns a company, a production house in Mexico City, and they've always been real big fans of a lot of the people that ended up working at Red, like uh, Ted Chilowitz and and Jared Land and guys like that. And so <clears throat> they had reserved a camera when they very first had heard about it, the, when it was very first announced back in, in 2006. And so we had gotten our hands on very, very early on, we'd gotten our hands on the cameras. And so we'd been using them a lot. So I was really used to working with the camera itself, and I was really used to the Final Cut Studio workflow, which to me seemed like the most developed at the time. But what I wasn't familiar with so much were 
the Avid and the Premiere workflows, as well as a lot of the more um, higher-end color grading applications that, that Red works with, <clears throat> like um, like Iridus. And um, and now, actually, it's interesting. We, we just started working with DaVinci in Red, and that's beautiful because it's all like load-in native files and just color grade all in real time. And so, you know, all that stuff is is always changing and becoming easier and, and more... Um, streamlined but you know just learning all those things that i hadn't had my my own day in day out experience with and seeing what they did differently was was an interesting challenge but i had a lot of help so the book starts back in uh nab 2006 at the uh the first public debut it's in some of the history of the putting the project together of course we're about to go into nab 2010 i mean what do you think um you know four years on the industry's view of red is i mean you're a sort of wide guy, you talk to a lot of people. Where do you think the red camera actually sits in terms of the perception of the industry? You know, it's it's funny because um when red first appeared, it it's interesting how their how their role has really evolved over the past four years because when they first appeared it was like somebody, you know, running into the into the convention halls over there in Vegas and like, you know, throwing a, a Molotov cocktail at at these at the industry that had really been pretty close, pretty tight knit and pretty closely um aligned for so long and like hey guess what we're going to make this camera it's going to be way cheaper than your camera way higher quality and we're doing it ourselves and you know so there and every at first everyone was just like yeah right you know you you guys have no experience doing this you're, you're never going to deliver this this sounds great on paper but a lot of people have come here with with a great presentation and have never delivered and uh and now you know four years later it's 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 almost like the shoes on the other foot because they have delivered other cameras and the industry has responded you know, in in its own ways, Canon is sort of busted out with with their DSLR cameras that really shoot quite quite impressive looking video. Um, not not anywhere in the level of quality as Red, but you know, a, a surprisingly robust and worthy challenger. And now Aria is just coming out with a, with their own uh, 4K RAW camera. That's that even the CEO of Red is admitted as a worthy competitor who's who's kind of skipped over in his own mind the, the the likes of similar cameras from from players like Sony and Panavision and Panasonic and you know is still willing to admit that he can see um, that that the industry is not just going to roll over and completely disappear without a fight which is you know it's interesting well let's let's look at that in a little bit more depth because it isn't um, I think a, a pivotal point there with things like the uh, Ari Alexa is it's a tapeless workflow. It's a data-centric workflow. Um, a lot of the other cameras in the uh, in the mix prior to this new generation were cameras that really relied on a tape format. And even today, the new Sony uh, SR2 is effectively a tape format on a tapeless recording mechanism. Um, so do you think things like the ARRI and, uh, and what's happened there are in any way a response to RED? Or do you think it's more like this was the way the industry was going and RED got there first? Well, I think in regards to the tapeless workflow, I think that's kind of inevitable. I mean, you know, uh, when was the last time you popped in an audio cassette into your car and listened to music? I mean, that that that's been gone for decades now, and and um, and I think it it only and and the same thing. You know, when was the last time you ran film through a still camera to to, to take photographs? I mean, some people still do as a either because they're just incredibly um, anachronistic or because they're doing it for the specific artistic aesthetic effect. But in general. You know the the digital storage has already overtaken a lot of a lot of areas where analog once lived, and I think it's so, yeah I think it's inevitable that that was going to happen. 
you were already kind of seeing that before Red even appeared. Panasonic was pushing a tapeless workflow, I want to say as early as maybe 2003 or four with P2. And at first people were just like, oh, this is crazy. You know, these chips are so incredibly expensive and they, and they store so little. But you could kind of see how, you know, they would evolve and, and ultimately there would be more and more space and things and prices would drop and that eventually tape would disappear because, you know, it, it, there's just so many more advantages to working with a, with a tapeless workflow in terms of the ease of use. But, of course, it does bring its own challenges, as, 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 you, may, as you may have discovered in your own work, uh, you know, uh, archiving becomes much more important because if you lose anything that's stored on a memory tape, it's not like – I mean, if you lose anything that's stored on a digital medium, it's not quite as simple as just rewinding the tape and playing it into your computer again. I mean, that could be your entire work gone because of, you know, whatever reason. So uh, Red's going to be coming out with uh, some new cameras, but just before they do, we've still got an environment where um, we have effectively the Red One and the MX version of it uh, competing. I'm wondering, just to push a bit further, whether you think that uh, the image of Red and where it's best sort of placed in the market has kind of settled down. Because, I mean, surprisingly, perhaps for some, it isn't perhaps used as much in, for example, Episodic, which went very heavily digital through the uh, strikes in the US. Um, it isn't, you know, the predominant camera that's used for Episodic television in a, in a digital format. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting piece. Where do you think people see it fitting and now it's all sort of the dust has settled? Well, I think Red is very, very well um, suited to, like, the music video world because that's where you've got a lot of directors who want to have their hands on the latest gear and are willing to, you know, uh, kind of steamroll over any concerns about workflow or, um, or company reputation. And I, and I don't think that Red's reputation is anything other than new. You know, you, you mentioned <clears throat> episodic television being some, a place they haven't made a ton of inroads. I think, I think the reason why is because you know, there's a lot of money on the line and there's a lot of, in, there's kind of a lot of ingrained studio mentality of people that are saying, Hey, you know, we either we've shot on film for 20, 30 years and it's never wronged us. And, you know, we're not hurting for money. So, you know, why would we switch over to something so new? Uh, or, or we'll switch, if we switch over, we're going to switch over to Sony cameras because, you know, that's a name we know and we trust. And, you know, we, there's no reason for us to take any risk here. There's no upside. So, you know, I think, I think that's, that may be what's, kind of prevented them from making further inroads and i think with anything else it's like you know more and more people will will take to it and you know but at the same time competitors will also come up with their own answers so i mean it has been an incredibly successful camera so we're not trying to paint it as not being because it obviously is hugely successful more successful and in that sort of section of the market than any camera that's preceded it and just in terms of units sold um but i ask i guess you raise this point about competitors if we went to nab and, for example, a Canon or a Sony, one of the big uh, giants awoke from their slumber and came out with, say, the 5D sensor sitting in a, in a video camera, not in a stills camera, uh, and it actually recorded raw and actually recorded higher resolution, therefore, than the 1920 by 1080 I mean, you know, how defendable is Red's innovative market position if a, if a Canon, for example, stirred and suddenly went at that market? You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm the biggest Red fan there is, but, you know, if, you, if a camera like that appeared um, on the scene and was affordable, I, I would say it would be difficult 
for and I, I think that's sort of happening to a certain extent anyway. I mean, right now, yeah, with with cameras like with the five D Mark II, I mean, for a pretty good swath of people who might have been red customers a year or two ago, that's kind of enough camera for them. And you know, there's the there's the ongoing argument now of like, well, you know, you're getting really heavy compression in the camera and the sensor doesn't go as fast as red so you wind up with more skew and you get all these artifacts and you know the lenses aren't quite the same you're not using cinema lenses you're using still lenses so you get breathing i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of caveats but i think i think at a certain market segment people are willing to swallow those caveats up because hey okay i'm still at the end of the day i'm still getting a a couple thousand dollars worth of camera and i'm shooting stuff that a couple of years ago, I would have had to shoot on 35. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I think you're going to have a lot of diehard fans that will that will never be shaken loose. But I, I think I think Red has its work cut out for it, and it's kind of it's kind of it's a, it's the monster of their own creation in a way because, you know, would these cameras have ever appeared had Red not beaten the hornet's nest so hard with their innovation? You know, that's a good question. Maybe they would have later or whatever, but uh, it's it's. It's hard not to look at what the, how the industry is, has evolved in the past few years and not at least see some aspects of Red's uh, responsibility for, for the way things are going. Yeah, and I, I love the 5D and, and the Canons as much as anyone, though, of course, being only an 8-bit format and stuff, again, at, compared to like a future for Epic, then, uh, then I agree that uh, unless they change, it's probably... <coughs> Uh, less of a battle, but when it gets to that scarlet range, then you're absolutely right. At the moment, as the, the playing fields are there, people are definitely looking at things like the 5D. But let me throw that the other way, though. What about Canon taking the fight? Sorry, uh, Red taking the fight to Canon because you know you've got Greg Williams in this book, and uh, he's obviously a stills photographer. There are people using the Red One for stills. They're going to absolutely use the uh, the Epic for stills. Do you think that Red has a future as a serious player in the stills market? That's a tough. That's that. That's tough because in order for them to really cut into that market, they have to do it so much better than. I mean, in in it's like you talk to ninety nine percent. I would say of of what we would consider working professional still photographers, and it's a question of Canon or Nikon. It's you know, Sony has has made some strong attempts to break into that market with their own lines of of of. Um, you know, professional digital still cameras, but I don't think they've, I don't think they've cut into that market at all. And I think it's because they've offered similar uh, specs to what's already there, and maybe even at a better price point, and maybe even with some innovations, uh, incremental innovations that weren't there already. But I think, I think Red would really have to throw such an incredible curve uh, on top of what already existed that it, it, it I, personally, I think they should stick to the the segment that they that they are most known for, which is motion picture cameras. I, I, I've always felt like that, that still market is something that they just, they really have to think so much higher and above what's, what's already existing. That it's going to be tough for them to really crack it. I guess for the stills market, for me anyway, it's uh, dominated by lenses as much as it's dominated by film bags. And of exactly. course, Red, while they make a bunch of lenses, you would think of Red, I think, as a camera company first and a lens manufacturer second. Um, and then, of course, the other factor is price. It's just not that expensive to buy an absolutely superb piece of Canon glass because you're in the uh, the mass market. But then 
you know, we are talking about a company that is owned and driven by a person who came from a mass market. There's absolutely nothing stopping them in terms of experience from going after a consumer. I mean, uh, you know, the the entire basis of uh, Jim Janard's previous existence was in a large-scale uh, consumer world. So that's, that's, I guess, the jury is out on that. Do you think that... Um, do you think that Red has suffered at all from the delays in getting Epic and Scarlet out, or do you think that the market is quite uh, understanding of the fact that, you know, it's a huge ask and these things take time? Because they are now effectively, I guess, about, what, you'd say six months behind where they maybe wanted to be or maybe people thought they might be? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, I, I, think, I, I think if nothing else, you have to kind of, you have to kind of give some major... Uh, credit to red for making so many huge leaps in such a short time as a company you know so many huge technological leaps in terms of getting a getting a camera out there getting a workflow together with so many different manufacturers basically positioning themselves in such a competitive way against so many long 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 time players that you know it, it, it's not. It's, it can't come as a huge surprise that that yeah. Ultimately, the, the you know the, the 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 locomotive on fire had to burn out at some point, and they had to slow down. So I, I yeah, it's it's hard not to see where that they don't have a, a, a scarlet on the market already. It, I mean, it, of course, yeah. People are always willing to wait for quality, and and I think the camera that they will ultimately deliver will. Will answer a lot of critics and and will seem like it's worth the wait, but but in the meantime, yeah, I I, I, w- I would say without question, some of that market segment is going elsewhere just out of a necessity because you still got a huge a huge uh, gap between say somebody who's in the market for a ten thousand dollar and under prosumer camera who wants something a little more interesting than a than a P two or XD cam camera who's who might be heading off to get a five D Mark II. Versus someone who can afford a really tricked out red package that can easily run you up to fifty, a hundred grand uh, in in U.S. dollars to really be competitive and and what the market would expect. So you know that that gap is sort of where red was aiming for, and I think I think they they it's still the jury's still out. You know, if, whenever they deliver, that's when we'll really know. But I think at this point, we're still kind of waiting with bated breath. It's funny, isn't it? Because the timeline, if if Red has done nothing else, and they've done a lot, but if they've done nothing else, they've accelerated the timeline of expectation because really new cameras tended to evolve on the market over a long period of time and, and then just, you know, even grow to numbers of cameras in the 50s would take, you know, a year. There would never normally be 4,000 cameras come out in, you know, 18 months kind of thing. So now, of course, we're criticizing a delay of six months, which to any other uh, environment in any other previous iteration of cameras would be would be nothing. So I guess the thing is that uh, at NAB time, uh, what do you expect to see? Uh, you know, we're only a week or two away. Do you expect... Uh, that uh, Red is going to pay any attention to that trade show in terms of, you know, having stuff there? I know they haven't got a booth, but uh, are you expecting to see Epics and Scarlets really soon, or are you sort of hanging back? And if so, will you get another edition of the book out with an update for those cameras? You know, that's a good question as as far as... as, um, I mean, yeah, I've always gone to NAB... Well, not always, but, you know, since I've been... been, um, into this industry, I've I've gone to NAB every year or NAB as we call it um, to see what's 
see what's the latest. And yeah, I, you know, I, I, Red has always been so unpredictable. I don't expect to see anything completely out of the blue because I think at this point they, they their work is cut out for them. I mean, they've announced so much stuff that I think at this point people would be just happy to see it actually shipping. So I don't expect to see anything anything um, you know uh, that we haven't already heard about. But it would be great to see a timeline. But I think you know I think I think what's been really interesting about them from the beginning is that they've always been they've always done things completely differently from any other company in this, in this market in that, you know, a company like Canon, a company like Sony, a company like Panasonic, they're incredibly secretive about their cameras. You know, they won't release any information about a camera until they have a release date. They have the manufacturing lined up and it's because, you know, for a variety of reasons, number one, they don't, they want to make sure that it's a camera that actually is going to come out. They want to make sure that they're not seeding any kind of market uh, segment to their competitors by, you know, uh, describing a technology that isn't widely in use already that, that might get their, you know, it's, it's, I think to say, you look at a, to me, Red is like the polar opposite of a company like Apple, which will hold its cards <laughs> to its, to the vest, like to the very last second, denying that a, that a product exists until it's like, you know, weeks away from shipping, even though everybody's been hearing about it for years. Whereas Red is the complete opposite. They they will the second they come up with a product, they'll tell you about it, and you know, and it may be years away. But they they're just so excitable about these things, and you know, I, I wouldn't use the, I, I I wouldn't I would never want to put a damper on that enthusiasm. But it's just interesting to see such a huge company willing to lay it on the line like that, and and basically, and yet, you know, and yet in some respects, I like Apple in that there's a, and I I don't mean this as a criticism, but there's almost a. Uh, a disregard for industry norms and just uh, let's see if we can build a better product without assuming that it has to look like the product that everybody else has already previously built. And I think that is actually closer to Apple than almost any other company. And that Apple, you know, and Apple was a company that got rid of their uh, spin wheel on an iPod, which most people would have said was the reason the iPod had sold millions uh, to go to a touchscreen because they just decided themselves that there was a better way of doing it. And they didn't even care that they sort of single-handedly wiped out their own own known yeah. innovation and red seems to do the same thing it's like if they decide there's a better way to make a camera they just kind of do it and don't stop to say but cameras always have the buttons on the left or the thing on the right or the or the what's so uh, it's interesting isn't it it's it's like a, it's a very different company philosophy and yet uh both uh innovation and uh and a i guess a well some would call it arrogance i would actually call it just a, a breath of fresh air in terms of uh, design just seeing you know is there a better design solution out there and they can move in that direction um the book is obviously at amazon i uh, read the ultimate guide to using the revolutionary camera we uh, I, I think it's about what 35 bucks on on amazon yeah yeah and um i think that the i know they're running a special during nab again this year i think if you go you can get it directly on Amazon. Also, if you go through Peach Pit, if you look on their website, there's like a coupon code you can enter in. Just you enter in the coupon code RED. Oh, yeah, okay. If you enter that in when you check out, it, it they knock off 35%. So I don't know whether it's worth looking into. I don't know if that makes it cheaper than Amazon's price 
or um, or about the same, but the, you, you have some options. It's available in, in, uh, in all over the place. And in fact, I think they actually have it at uh, the NAB stands uh, at the store for, uh, for, I think they did last year, that it was available as one of the books from the uh, NAB shop. Um, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. And hopefully when Scarlet and Epic come out, you'll revise the book so we can all have a, a second edition with the, uh, the new sensors and the new uh, formats because no doubt there'll be a whole lot more workflow for you to write about. Yeah. No, I, they, it's one thing I love about this company. I've, I've always been a, a trainer uh, at heart and, um, and they keep me very busy. They keep us, they keep us all in business because these, these are not simple workflows and uh, you know, people are always asking questions. So yeah, looking forward to it. And Noah, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or follow up, is there uh, some place you have a website or a uh, Twitter account or something that they wanted to uh, get in touch with you? How would they be best way to go about doing that? Oh yeah, they can look if they look for uh, our training company, um, Callbox, where we do we actually offer all kinds of videos on every other kind of camera out there and how to how to run it and edit with it. Uh, that's www.callboxlive.com. And um, let's see, I'm on Twitter under no e fresh, so the letters N O E and then fresh. Excellent. Well, thanks for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Noah. That was fantastic. Thanks, Mike. That was a good interview. He's, uh, now, he's, he's going to be – I mean, his book's on sale at the NAB Bookshop. Yeah, we touched on it just then in the interview. And, in fact, he's doing a book signing. So if you're in going to NAB on the Monday, the first day of the show, between, I think uh, – 1 and 1.30, uh, that's the 12th. He'll be in the NAB bookstore and he'll uh, autograph you a copy. Plus, I think there's a, there's a discount available at the store. So it, it's a good book, honestly, it is. And, and uh, clearly, you know, anything with red moves on. But mm. um, a lot of the workflow is still valid and I don't think it's irrelevant. And, of course, the other thing is there's these great sort of anecdotal views on red from just about it. It's like a who's who. In fact... You're in there somewhere. Am I? Yes. Oh, well, I'll expect my under, son. I think my son could be waiting useful, for me on, on my pillow. Useful blogs and things to listen to. Excellent. I think your podcast is listed this way. I should bloody hope so. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so thanks, Noah, for that. Excellent. Uh, okay, well, gear. Um, again, continuing our rather canon-centric uh, episode. Now, what there's an absolute dearth of at the moment, and uh, kind of rightly so, we'll talk about the tech behind it a little bit, is uh, PL-mounted 7Ds, mainly 7Ds at the moment, obviously because the sensor is uh, around the same size as uh, Super 35 and you don't have any lens issues. Um, but uh started being prompted by um, FGV, Rental, in Germany, coming out with a... PL mounted, uh, PL mount mod, completely modified 7D. Now, the main issue, obviously, with modifying your 7D to get. It voids the warranty? (laughs) (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Seriously. Uh, It may may void your warranty. Just attack my camera okay. and yeah. rebuild it. Because obviously the gate depth, the, the rear depth of the, the lenses, cinema lenses, um, obviously going to start fouling on your mirror. And if you're really just going to the level of putting a PL mount on your 7D... You don't want to be scratching the glass by having the mirror come up and hit exactly. it. Exactly. But also you're probably not too fussed about what kind of stills it's going to do. So uh, most of these mods, and I'll quickly run through some of the other people that are doing them, uh, obviously involve removal of the shutter and the mirror box and all that sort of... Uh, they still keep, keep the curtain shutter. 
in the rear so you can actually still do stills but obviously you've got to do it via live in live mode uh, but essentially one of the main reasons for, for um, having a pretty serious mod rather than just necessarily getting a mount is the fact just that the serious weight of say um, even a short zoom or even you know like a master prime on the front of these cameras there's so much weight on the mount of the camera um, that a lot of these mounts now are actually a base and a mount in one so literally the camera is almost attached to oh, really? the back so, of the, back so it of goes, the mount. Right, okay, so it goes underneath the camera almost. Yeah, they'll go, go down underneath the camera or they are the camera is suspended above the rods and basically, essentially, you know, like when you put your camera on, your mm-hmm. your 5D on the back of a 70 to 200 or so, the camera is kind of mounted on the, on the lens, essentially. Yeah, no, it is. So the the, the lens takes the weight of the camera. Yes, absolutely. So a lot of these mounts are incredibly expensive because they involve basically... You know, destroying your camera, a lot of a lot of <laughs> destroying a lot of the uh, resale of of the camera, um, removing a whole bunch of uh, stuff, stripping the camera away, taking a lot of equipment out, a highly precision mount, uh, bolting it into here, collimating it and shimming it and getting it correctly adjusted to your camera. Um, yeah, and obviously you've got some finely honed uh, German metal being installed, so these things are not uh, cheap. Anywhere from like sort of three or four k US up to about you know four thousand seven hundred. But uh, so you Euro. buy your camera for seventeen hundred, and then exactly. you spend four and a half. Oh, the camera's the cheap bit. Absolutely, these are like you know five thousand euros. A lot of these mounts. Um, but obviously, what they're letting you do is uh, I'm still a little bit grey as to if you can start renting all this PL glass. And I mean, I guess it makes sense when it's your B roll camera or your stunt camera or rig camera, and you've already on set got cases of PL glass but as a one-off thing like if you can afford to rent all that glass just rent something else you know get a red (laughs) you know this is not, you know, you've got a cost-saving camera, so but think, a really you think expensive lens. People are going to look lenses. back on this period of time in a few years and go, oh, "Just people went to such extraordinary lengths to these, try and get." Uh, these photos need to be kept because I think, you know, a while at the moment, it's fantastic, and I know a lot of people that are buying these mounts, and there's a lot of people making them. You really ticked off. You went to NAB, and there was an XL Canon with a 5D sensor in it, wouldn't you? <laughs> and you'd be like, "Oh." <laughs> Well, it's got to happen. Any, you know that these things are a bit of a time bomb. You've just got to notice that the video division of Canon is going, why is everybody using the stills cameras for video? Absolutely. You just know that uh, stuff's got to be in the works for sure. And, of course, you know, this is all because of, you know, that we're still waiting on, on, on Scarlet. We're waiting on Epic. And when, the, when we can start to get a reasonably, you know, a, quite a cheap raw, you know, 100 whatever frames per second no video issues, record sound levels, all the sort of stuff, all, all well, the, other the thing gotchas. Is Nikon's got know. to get back in the game. Well, yeah, I gave up on Nikon, clearly. I bought a 5D, gave up waiting for them to uh, pull their finger out video-wise. mode, video wise. But clearly, obviously, the, D, the successor to the D700 has taken a while. It's taken a while. They're holding off, I'm presuming, maybe at NAB, something. We'll, we'll see. We definitely, the next thing from... Nikon will probably be some kind of Canon 5D killer. Or, or, or it's going to be an RIP card from you. <laughs> okay, well, what we're going to do now is start our series on workflow. So we're going to be doing a different camera each week. We're going to tackle it. Um, this is the kind of uh, quick uh, overview without pictures. Um, you'd be naive to think you, that we wouldn't have exactly this with pictures at FXPHD. <laughs> Sorry to do the plug, but we do. Um, this is uh, stuff that we do for PhD and obviously in, in depth, but uh, 
if you, you know, not everybody is a member of PhD. And for those of you that aren't, we're going to try and give you um, a summary workflow. And we discussed the Phantom last week, and this is what led to this whole um, thing coming up, which was we discussed the Phantom camera, but a lot of people were tweeting and uh, sending us emails saying, what about the workflow of the... It's all very well shooting it, but what do you, what do you yeah. do about it after that? And so we're going to discuss with that one. And there is some, some enormous amount of stuff actually coming out in workflow at NAB, so the timing couldn't be better. We'll give you the rundown uh, on what's happening with the Phantom. Some of the stuff that's coming out for the Phantom we can't talk about this week we'll actually cover under other cameras and note that it also applies back to the Phantom. And uh, so, Jace, our two options at the moment are really clear with the Phantom. Uh, option number one is actually to use the software that comes from Vision Research. Now, Vision Research uh, is a company that comes from the non-broadcast film industry. Basically, it produces cameras that shoot incredibly high speeds. And so, as you'd expect, their primary workflow is to process the clips, but not in the way that we might think of with EDLs and, and stuff like that. So, there's a what I would actually describe almost as an equivalent to the original Red Alert, not maybe as sexy, but that kind of an approach where you, you can process a single clip. And this software is stuff that you can download from, for free from uh, the uh, Vision Research website. It runs on Windows, but you can actually run it under um, Windows emulation on a Mac, but I guess most people would run it on uh, Windows. And what it does is allow you to open up a file, um, which would be a cine file, as in the sort of raw cine file that comes off the uh, Phantom, in this case either the 640 or the Phantom HD, as we shot both on our um, shoot. And you'll get the metadata that is uh, tagged with that uh, camera at that time. It'll give you the frame rate, it'll give you any exposure information that it has, and just general stuff like trigger time and anything else you've bothered setting up on the camera. So, as I said, a lot like what I'd expect with um, with Red Alert, if you're used to Red Alert. And then inside uh, the app, we, on a per-shot basis, can adjust it, set some in and out points, and uh, and process the clip. There is no use having a .cine file from the Phantom because you can't do <laughs> you can't do anything with it. We need to get it into some other format. Right. Now these come as like a TIFF sequence, doesn't it? It's like a whole series of stills. No, at, the, at this stage, we, we've got a cine file, which yep. is to say, yes, um, uh, but it's a it's a collection of the files that aren't readable really by anything other than the three things I'm going to mention today. Iridus is the third one. Um, but generally speaking, you're going to process them to something else like a BPX sequence and then and then take it from there. So in terms of when I open the file, because it's a raw file, and it is a raw file, it's not even compressed, mm. um, it's huge, it but it's, it's got lots of ability to adjust for white balance um, and a whole lot of things. In fact, you can do a 16-bit to 8-bit conversion at this point. You can rotate it, flip it, you can... Um, put time code in it you can do a whole lot of things gamma saturation brightness all the sort of things that you'd expect but more importantly you can just trim down the clip because it's fairly likely shooting at 2500 frames a second mm. that you have more footage than you want the trouble with this workflow of course is that because it's uh independent of edl independent of um an xml or any kind of structured avid final cut workflow it is on a per clip processing basis and consequently it doesn't uh happen particularly easily or quickly or quickly. Well, it's not, yeah, it's not in of itself slow, but it's obviously a slow uh, process to work your way through it. It's big files, and obviously you're shooting, you know, 1,000, 2,000 frames a second, so you're just churning, creating a lot of data really quick. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, so that is, um, and I think it's really funny because because <laughs> there's actually an option when you're outputting the, at this thing. There's like you know like weird things that come up that say, "Hey, we didn't develop this for your industry." One of them there's like a button for like outside the uh, image, you can have none. 
standard, which is some kind of like outside border, or military. I'm like, what? Cool. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> Middle spec. Anyway, um, I don't know what that is, but that's just a, that's a side thing in the borders. Okay, so we're outputting from um, that program, and we've got a DPX sequence, and from there on out, we're fine, and we just go ahead. There's no backtracing because there is no concept of doing anything else. Um, I could output a, uh, I don't know, a movie from the, uh, the file, and then I'm just done. Okay, so the, the, the more sexy workflows are the ones that have some kind of extension into understanding, um, you know, film environment. And, you know, the guys at uh, Vision Research are fully uh, all for this. So there are two big options. The first one is Iridus. Now, that's been out for ages, and this is one of the few sort of grading products that actually reads the .cine files. And so if that's the case, you can open up the files there, process them, grade them, and, uh, and, and away you go. The newer one is uh, Glue Tools. So Glue Tools are a company that makes a product for, for example, looking at DPX. Uh, like if you're on your Mac and you ever get DPX files, you'll notice that you can't just open them up like you can a TIFF. And so they've had for a while a bunch of products, one of which um, handled Cine on a DPX files called Cine on DPX Pro, unsurprisingly. I think that's this is the people that did the 5D thing. Okay, and then the other one is um, the other one is the Phantom Cine Toolkit. Now this came out in around uh, end of January, beginning of February, and this is uh, um, actually I think that was when it came out, or maybe that was when version two came out. But it's uh, basically a plug-in, and this now again operates very much like Redwood in the sense that I get something that is uh, a plug-in that I would put into something like uh, OS X ten point five six point two kind of thing. And that would give me the ability to have a look at the files inside Final Cut because what it's doing is it's treating the QuickTime. If you treat the QuickTime, then you're acting in a way that makes it very easy for anything that is QuickTime-based to read it. Now, of course, Final Cut's built on QuickTime, so it works that way. Um, in fact, it'll pop up in two places. It'll pop up in your system preferences. So if you were to go to system preferences, um, as is your glue tools for your Cine DPX files there, you'll also see your glue tools uh, for your Phantom and then you'll be able to open up and adjust things. And, of course, now uh, we're much more working in a timecode-friendly world. We're much more working with things that we'd expect, like black point and white point in the sort of traditional video sense aspect ratio, all the things that we'd be kind of uh, used to. And we can look at the data in a bunch of different ways. We don't need to process it at all. We can open it just in Final Cut. If we didn't want to play with our system folder we could do exactly the same thing by um, bringing it in through Final Cut and getting to almost exactly the same menu uh, through Final Cut. And if you adjust one, it, it you know reflects in the other. So if you were adjusting your system preferences, it would actually immediately affect it inside Final Cut and vice versa. And, and this lets you bring stuff in. Um, and it would let you set gammas and uh, color spaces and all the sort of things that you'd expect. It's pretty reliable. In fact, I'd say it's pretty darn reliable. There's actually a bug in... The implementation, we think, with something to do with the metadata that's been coming out of, um, uh, like, the Phantom 640. So there's actually a fix that if you were to load this up and you get, like, a red line, like, you know how when your media's not in your Final Cut? Yeah. You get a little red line icon mm. through it? Yeah. Mm. Okay, it says media offline. That isn't actually the media's offline. Um, if you've installed it correctly, it's just a bug. And so there's actually a uh, fix for it. You can actually go and download a little tiny app called Fixes Cines. It's a good idea. Um, and you just run it, and it's basically a script that fixes the header. And then 
it'll be fine after that. As soon as you've done that, you don't have to do it. It takes like seconds. And then when you bring it back in again, it'll just come in uh, completely normally. So assuming you don't have that bug, you're going to bring everything in uh, quite happily to uh, Final Cut and then just be able to edit with it and it'll work uh, on the timeline. You won't have to convert it. Um, you are, of course, dealing with stuff in the same way that Red is dealing with stuff um, in the timeline with your Red code. So you may want to then transcode that on the way out and you're still going to have a render hit on that. But at least you can bring it straight into Final Cut. And of course, you're no longer dealing with a single clip with a single in-out point in a kind of clunky user interface. You're actually using it uh, inside a much more friendly workplace. And as I showed in uh, in FXPHD, for those of you that were uh, members last term, we actually showed how you could hack into it and actually look at the Bayer pattern on the chip, and um, you might be interested in this, Jace. We can actually zoom right in to the actual chip Bayer pattern because there are enough settings to get in under the hood on the raw Cine file. Wow, that's like that, electron microscope. It, it is literally like electron microscope. If you ever wanted to actually see the Bayer pattern in action, and it's actually quite funny how obviously it's very green because there are twice as many green um, uh, chips as there are or sensor points as there are, um, but you can see that the Bayer to uh, non-Bayer. It's just so remarkable to think how much. Um, how much is processing is going on in that last final step of debayering. Um, one thing I will say, um, the uh, the whole thing works um, pretty darn well, and it is, as I said, I think at the outset, not the end of the story. There's more coming, um, hopefully around the time of NAB. We don't know exactly when, but when we find that out, we'll um, we'll cover it. And this um, this approach of dealing with the raw files uh, in Final Cut, I just want to flag one thing, Jace. If I do this, and this is the same problem we actually had with Red, but much much worse in um in the phantom is what i just described sounds really good and if i was a marketing guy i'd shut up there but obviously i don't work for for vision or anyone else so i will flag this if you think that that is your best way forward just think of it in terms of the production for a second if jace you were doing a pouring shot i would totally suggest this is the way to go if you were doing a feature with someone like richard editing it i'm not going to suggest that as a way to go because that is that is hitting (laughs) the raw uncompressed files so in, a, in, an, in an offline sense, that's like the worst case scenario. The offline editor would require terabytes and terabytes yeah. and terabytes mm. of stuff because he'd have to have all of the original source, raw, uncompressed files, i.e. 30 times worse than red, sitting on their local hard drives just to do an offline edit. So yes, it happens in an offline product, and yes, that would be good for your single pouring shot where you've got like 10 takes, but the second that you started using the uh, Phantom 640 or, or uh, Phantom HD for actually doing you know, proper storytelling, you wouldn't want to go that. You'd still have to transcode upstream of doing that edit. Otherwise, you'd just run out of disk space no matter how friggin' many... There's another workflow, which they touched on on the ACS night, which is obviously goes right back to the very beginning on set. And it's obviously you're not necessarily dealing in a raw environment, but you can obviously from the camera... You can output a very nice-looking, clean SDI straight from the camera, and the camera will play back in playback real time to, uh, say, an SI recorder or something on set. That's yeah, completely no, you're bypassing right. your last no, 10 no, minutes. You're, you're completely right. That is absolutely right. If you were in, a, in, a, in a, some kind of real-time environment, um, like a, a sporting match, yeah, you could completely take the... Uh, HD feed out of the camera. It would be 422, 1920 by 1080. Yep. It wouldn't even be 444. still going to look good and you're going to have a bit of totally. grading ability, um, I guess. And you would just have to whack that into a drive. And, of course, then you've recorded. I think most people... Uh, I, yeah, okay. There's going to be My people bad. that are one of that. <laughs> should, there's going to be people that that's, that's that going to suit, yeah. I guess. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely I right. Suppose. I should have said that at the beginning. No, no. no it's, it's, there's going to be people that that more might suit, people who might not want to do or have the schedule pain or have... 
Um, I just want a sort of cheap and cheerful, quick way of doing it and maybe just have one shot in a sequence where they just, you know, everything else is 25 frames on a different camera and they've just got one product shot that they've got to do this way. Um, uh, so I don't know. That is an alternate way of going. Obviously, you're not going to have that raw, you're not going to have the grading latitude but uh, look, you know, the images of this camera can look so great straight out of the box. If you get it looking, you know, even 25% along the way in camera, then, you know, that is a, a, a potential way to go. If, if you want to go straight to SR tape, say, or some other recording media. Yeah, like, like I mean, you completely could uh, could do what you're saying and, and happily so. And, and, and in fact, you know, people do. Um, I guess I was... Uh, approaching it from a post-production point of view that is biased by my own background my own background yeah. being obviously visual effects i'm always processing stuff and going for the raw files but yeah there's, you're absolutely right there's no reason you couldn't do this um straight and in fact somebody did point out to us in the or do both. yeah do both somebody did point out um in an email which i'm desperately looking for but can't seem to find uh so i apologize to whoever emailed this in that there is some uh issues in sports that it's not likely to replace traditional sports cameras in terms of being able to sync and uh, align cameras uh, because you know they are specialist event type things so even though you may have a bunch of them at a sporting event you're probably not going to have them as your primary cameras uh, for all the reasons that Sony has spent so much money developing really really good ENG cameras um, with everything that entails but um, true yeah so uh, so the Phantom I think I think it's a good camera. Um, oh, sensational. I mean, the alter- there is no... Al- well, apart there from the Wisecam. Yeah, the Wisecam, I was going to say. Wisecam, whichever, which we'll also investigate when we're there in NAB, AB, yeah. for sure, um, which is, you know, seems to be similar product. There's obviously some differences there, but we will uh, we'll definitely uh, aim to get to the bottom of Wisecam. But essentially, the other alternative is, you know, the horrific pain of uh, film at probably topping out on 35mm at about practically at around three or three or four hundred frames a second and it's incredibly incredibly expensive so almost these days essentially if you suggested high speed film for you know your average tvc or or feature you that probably you know producers are going to start going well hang on so yeah the old, there isn't not really much alternative is there well, well i think the the weiss cam is good for studio work it's a bulkier camera and we'll get into this when we cover it so i, I would actually i would actually say it's a valid alternative to i don't think it's a valid alternative to the phantom in a more remote uh setup because it doesn't have the same cinemag but um yeah no, i i i don't want to dish the weiss cam let's have a look at it at nab and and uh, regroup after that before we say I don't think there's an alternative. Yeah, no. I like the Phantom, but I'm just saying. No, I mean I'm, the alternative to to you know doing it digitally, essentially you know film. Oh, is, you mean shooting film? Yeah, yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was yeah. like, what? Shoot film? What? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've both been it's on like set. This new way, or the, this is definitely one way. Five hundred foot mag. You like, know, remember those Mitchell? Uh, what they were like? Military cameras for doing. Uh, the main one that was here was the Panavision. Uh, uh, what was it? The uh, three sixty, uh, I think, and it went up to three hundred, three three six, three hundred, three hundred. 60 frames a second or something I just it should be the, embedded in my DNA I loved to getting it up to speed though because you know you'd be like and then you'd yeah, be like you never quite speed, knew when it was cut. up to speed you just say well it's not getting any higher so I'll just say speed now and uh, every single roll you had to get your syringe of oil out and oil the 15 points that the manual suggested and then uh, spend another 15 minutes relacing it and uh, yeah no, we never. That's one area where I'm very, very glad that we've uh, moved on. That's a world of hurt. 
particularly if you have a jam at uh, 300 frames a second and oh, it's just like, yeah. come back tomorrow. Yeah, oh, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But okay, the other yeah, thing was just how it would burn money, right? Oh, it just... Because you'd be there and you'd be yeah, like... you couldn't put 400-foot loads on it. You had to have 1,000-foot loads, and that's, you know, whatever. Nowadays, that's 1,500 bucks oh, well, just to process that. That's a stupid thing to say. Yes, yeah, 1,000-foot no. load. You yeah. had to put 1,000-footers. Otherwise, yeah. you just, by the time it got up to speed, you'd just, you know, you'd get one take, and then you have to start relacing the thing. So it was, uh, yeah, d- definitely you big rolls and big reloads and, yeah, and... Again, what's fabulous about like Weiss cams and the Phantom is you get that pre um, that oh, pre roll, pre roll and post roll, or you can basically have a trigger. You can say, you know, when the the tablet is dropping into the water or whatever, you can just hit it when it hits and set it for two seconds pre roll to that or one second, whatever you need. And it's just that it's just like from old farts that have come from or not so old farts that have come from that world of pain of trying to time a $1,500 worth of film when it's going to get up to speed and when the standby props guy drops the tablet in the water or whatever or pops the champagne cork or whatever and you time it wrong and that's a $1,500 down the down the drain and uh, you know to, to now have this predictability of the well, uh, plus you couldn't review trigger, back, right? trigger mode so- it's just you know the other one that was really funny? I, I, and that one was bad, right? Because, you know, you'd have, like, the light bulb, whatever it was, popping, and you wouldn't know if you got it because you couldn't tell because you couldn't get playback. Yeah, that's true. But, but the one You that, had to play back on a VHS machine playing yeah. back at one frame. But the every other one that was really funny... Did you ever do um, Frozen Moment stuff, like uh, Frozen Time? You know, like the Matrix Frozen... Bullet Time kind bullet of thing. Time oh, stuff? No. Because that was the funniest thing, right? Because what happened is you've got, like... We, we did a ton of them, and there was, like, a huge number of cameras around in a loop, yeah? Yeah. Full 360... Yep. All digital SLRs and all stuff. Film SLRs. Well, they were digital. Actually, okay. we, I okay. did shoot one with film. Right. Um, and the film one was even worse because they had to buy cine film and then load the cine film Don't into film it. canisters so that would match. Yeah. But we went to digital. But okay, but so on the film ones, and so, so you get up there and let's say you got somebody jumping in the air. And, and so literally it'd be like, and action. They just jump and stand on the ground again. And you go, wow. Did, did anything happen? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> it's like, you know, exactly. It was like, Okay. Yeah. And then the client would be like, so when are we going to... No, we just did it. What? Yeah. Oh, That's it? Can we sit back? No. No. <laughs> it's like, when can we sit back? Tomorrow? No. Nah. <laughs> the day after? Particularly if it's a uh-huh. film. Well, first of all, I've got to get every single roll out of this camera processed exactly. And then we have to get them all in sync because you have a misfire on one camera. So one camera would be out of sync with every other camera. Right, you have a black hole in one of your shots, which yeah. happened. And even if you if you look at totally. the Matrix, look at the Matrix DVD, there's... there's there's skips and and then you have to do optical flow on them to try and oh you have to you have to color correct them so that they lined up in terms of um, uh, color then you'd have to stabilize them so they lined up off some yeah thing and and you'd have to stabilize you'd have to do a whole pass shooting a rod yep so that you could track it and then apply the track from that to the second take when you had the actor in there and then you had to allow for the fact that it was really stuttery so then you had to stabilize and then interpolate then optically reflow. And then try and look at doing something with it. And then you've got to mat the people out of there and you've got to start matting out the cameras from the first frame, which are going to be in shot by the time you get, get to, to the, the last, last frame. Five cameras. Yeah. And then there's a ton of paintwork, yeah, for all the rigs and everything else. It's funny because uh, I remember a guy who I used to work with, uh, who's now from Brisbane, did one of those. And uh, I was like, wow, it was like a lot of work and stuff. And he went, actually, we just hung a guy on wires and just walked <laughs> just, around it with the yeah, camera. Yeah, he just like, held what? the position and we just tracked around him and sped it up. Yeah, and so when I came to do one later, I had yeah. a guy uh, doing... I, I did the same thing. I had him fall forward and freeze. 
and then uh, we just moved the camera around. And then I took out the frame right before he froze. So it was like a sudden stop. There was no deceleration. And then did a bit of stabilizing, and there was some lightning and stuff going on at the same time. But I felt really sorry because there was some really good um, – there, there was a rig still, I think, in Sydney uh, that – oh, no, it's in Melbourne, actually, that does it with digital cameras. And mm. they had each camera was hooked up to a Mac Mini. And then each Mac Mini was hooked up to a master Mac Tower – and the individual cameras would fire. They would send back their images. You'd have pre-stabilized it and set it as an After Effects pre-save. And then you could actually play it back for the client on set. And, mm. uh, and I actually I did a story on this uh, for something. Actually, it was for PhD back in like four years ago. And uh, we had me with a sparkler uh, frozen. But it, it, on set, it's still <laughs> ridiculous, exciting. right? Oh. <laughs> sounds riveting. Well... <laughs> <clears throat> Me with a sparkler. Fabulous. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> You're such a dick. <laughs> it was, I was writing FX PhD in the air. I don't know how I did that now, come to think of it. Because how did that work? <laughs> just, just getting better and better. <laughs> it must have been long exposure on every camera. It was. It was long right, exposure right. on every camera. Yeah. It was long exposure and, and uh, end curtain flash. Yeah, right, exactly. And so they're all. Road PhD. They're all firing it. They're all doing they're it at all, the same all, time. All open for 10 firing seconds while I time. drew. Yeah. And then that sounds all, really cool, though. I guess I can, I, I, can, I can visualize the final. I officially hate you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can visualize it. It's cool. Sounds good. You don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen that since. Oh, I haven't seen it at all. <laughs> You're not going to see it. <laughs> well, I think that's about it for this week, other than uh, your Twitter pic, Jase. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm going today for Tom Dobby, um, who is, funnily enough, Tom Dobby, D-O-B-B-I-E on Twitter. Uh, if you go to tomdobby.com, two Bs, uh, lovely guy, great resource on Twitter, pops up with interesting, positive stuff all the time. Uh, he's a still photographer who's getting into the video side of things, and what he does is uh, really, really nice macro uh, jewelry watches. My person, one of my um, personal fetishes, fetishes of uh, of uh, watches. We haven't done Tom before. Mm, don't believe so. Did you do the jewelry on the guitar? God, I thought we'd done that one. Gee, don't think so. If we did, you can ignore this comment. If we did, you won't be hearing this. Use the one. No, no, you can use the. uh, Because I also got uh, Noah's uh, Twitter feed. And for those of you. Oh, yeah. Because we do get the odd email when we make a mistake. Yes. Particularly me. I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, Tom's a lovely guy. And, um, yeah, some gorgeous stills. And he's starting to adapt that still style into um, a shooting motion picture. Uh, really, really hard stuff. If anyone's ever actually tried to do this kind of stuff, photographing jewellery, photographing anything very small, uh, is just a world of hurt. You start to see dust everywhere, even though you cleaned the thing 30 seconds ago. Uh, it's just, I mean, obviously you Photoshop all that stuff out, but just getting depth and the amount of light in this stuff to get this stuff sharp. And obviously mainly we're talking stills here, but still it's just anybody who does this kind of work, I just find impressive trying to get, you know, some diamonds to sparkle yet make the, the lighting for the diamonds terrific yet get the gold reflecting beautifully. And uh, anyway, speaking of tweets, you, you tweeted the most awesome Japanese mod camera site thing for, uh, what uh was that? A, um, oh, the guy that did the Leica, build your own digital Leica. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, it's... And, and inexplicably at the yeah, end, it just has shots of it with guns. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is it Japanese or Russian? Uh, it's a Japanese guy, I think, and uh, he took a, a Sony 
just a Sony point and shoot and put it inside. I think it's a Russian copy of a germ of a uh, World War Two uh, Leica. Oh, hence the. It's a Russian copy of a very, very rare Leica. And he's just amazingly adapted this Leica with all the, you know, you press the old shutter button and it turns the power on. You do the winding and it, you know, it uh, adjusts the mode. The mode buttons are all beautifully cut out of the leather on the back. You unscrew the bottom base plate where you would load the film and that's where you put the battery and the memory card in. This is an insane retro weird steampunk nutcase thing which at the end of the day you're just left with a still left with a sony point and shoot so if, it, if you'd like to get info <laughs> on that kind of thing i'll put the links follow the no i was gonna say follow you on uh, twitter at twitter.com slash wingrove. Uh, wingrove yes and you are mike seymour i am but i what i'd like people to do is go to www.fxguide.com yes because and, and what do they the, do when they get there well, because that would be the uh, the place to go for... Uh, Absolutely. And uh, there'll this. be Dean's blog will probably be... That's there on FX Guide front page, isn't it? The Dean's Which, blog is off PhD on... Um, oh, it's PhD. No, no, but it's, it's, it's mirrored yeah. over on FX Guide. Yeah, yeah and, that's uh, what I thought. And which, obviously, you'll be updating next week. Yes, we'll, um, we'll actually put a lot of stuff in our Twitter feeds, but, yeah, there'll be a ton of stuff uh, being posted on FX Guide, as always. Yep, um, absolutely. It, obviously, the Twitter is going to be the best thing to get us while we're there, and if there's a piece of gear... I was that, segueing towards the show notes, and you've diverted me, sir. I'm, I'll undo so I was going to say, the go. reason why you want to go there to FX Guide to answer your question is, if you go to podcasts and hit Red Center, I say this because Jace puts an enormous amount of work, I do no work on this, into the show notes. And if you were to go to FX Guide and go to podcasting Red Center... There's a link for uh, downloading the show notes there, which really are um, worth doing. They're like a brochure every week um, of uh, useful links and stuff. So uh, I was trying to give if you If someone a, um, doing your brochures makes them look like that, I'd say immediately <laughs> just fire the guy. But yes. Well, but they're not, they're but not yes, just... They're, it's not like it's a, not text a text list. No. no, it's like interesting things. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to continue to plug it a bit more because there's so much other sort of stuff there on FS Guide that... You know, obviously, you don't necessarily have to sign up for t- to get. There's a whole bunch of uh, there's some great stuff there on Hurt Locker uh, shooting the explosion effects. There's a lot of practical shooting stuff. It's not obviously just visual effects and post. Uh, some great on set stuff as well. Um, shooting the uh, shipyard fight for Sherlock Holmes and a lot. Of, so there's a lot of fantastic uh, stuff there from uh, all your brilliant contributors and yourself, Mike. Yes, yes. We have a lot of people that work on uh, FX Guide, uh, but obviously John heads the team. Okay, well, that's it for us. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next yes, week. Yes, we'll We're catch from you soon. NAB. Indeed. Thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us, red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.